Welcome to Another Bite Side, the show where we talk about tech and games and culture and all things digital. Here, out of our Australian studios, I use the phrase plural because we don't sit next to each other. Uh, one of us sits in one part of New South Wales, another in another. We've been doing it that way ever since before coronavirus. Nick Healy, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, you remind me that I've actually had some amazing chats this week with some um, uh, regional politicians about how they want to see telecommuting become the default norm from now on, even after we get out of coronavirus. And basically, one of them, member for Barwon, Roy Butler, is saying that we need to open up all public sector jobs that can be telecommuted to be openly available for telecommuting. That would be brilliant. Like, ever since I moved to the Southern Highlands, it was always that theory that at some point this has to become a new norm. Kids shouldn't have to leave a beautiful region, regional area that they grew up in just to go and get, uh, you know, inverted quotes, kind of proper job. It's like it would just be so much better if big companies, any white-collar role, really should be able to be done in a lot of ways remotely. And look, if it the... Just, pu- like, there's... I'm just thinking... Sorry, I'm just like... Oh, there's a there's clearly... There's little nits and... No, little bits and pieces of, like, why it can work better in other ways. But, you know, for the most part, you're like 95%, and therefore companies can come up with sort of ways to bring people together now and then to do better, you know, in-person meetings now and then. But they don't need the big office in Sydney that forces everybody to come together every single day. And look, if a state public sector can lead the charge on this, especially one from a a Liberal government state, incredibly, incredibly happy to see that happen. Let's talk about who might be telecommuting from jail if everything goes well for (laughs) Tesla CEO Elon Musk. Have you seen the news? It's just a bit ridiculous. He's confessed that he has been restarting his production line on the Tesla against the county rules, the health rules. Uh, he says he's going to be on the assembly line and, and he should be the one who gets arrested first. He's clearly having a Spartacus moment there and hoping his workers will as well. Um, I don't know whether he will get arrested. We need to acknowledge that if you're a white billionaire, jail isn't quite the risk that it probably is for many, many other people. Hey, maybe if he goes to jail for 90 days, I don't know, maybe they'll change his attitude. Yeah, like this, I mean, it's right, we we should have known last week it wasn't going to be peak Elon when it came to the discussions we were having. Um, and, of course, the hardest part of this is forcing the workers to come back to work. There's been a uh-huh. whole discussion around sort of there's been efforts from Tesla workers to unionise that he's been very much against. Um, this is exactly the sort of moment where you really do want a representative of the working staff to step in and say, dude, just chill. Please, because we're talking about people's lives, not just their livelihoods, their lives. And I get it. You are trying to make a point here. Stop making it with people who can't afford to say no to you. Yeah. And look, I mean, you know, it speaks to all the, so many of the protest issues that are going on around all this stuff. It's like it's it's mostly people who have money demanding that other people get back to doing jobs that serve them and their daily lives. Let's just all think more about each other a little more. You know, we want to come out the other side of this thing. I can't wait to go and sit in, you know, a random bar in Sydney and 
chill with some friends, but not at the expense of somebody being forced to serve me drinks. <laughs> yeah, please. I mean, I got so excited by the idea that from Friday, maybe some restaurants will be allowed to, well, they will, but, you know, in New South Wales, the restrictions will be changing. You'll be able to have 10 people in a cafe or restaurant. But let's be honest, there's very few restaurants or cafes who can afford to only have 10 people. Like, they might as well just keep doing takeaways. Very few. That 10 kind of audience isn't going to be enough. And that's okay. We can wait a little bit longer. Look, that's a really good point. And, yeah, it's like I get, you know, it's. I think it's great that we're starting in the right place with sort of having the small numbers. Some places will be able to sort of work at that level. So it lets some people start kind of the wheels turning again. But I think people should remember to not get upset if other places are saying, look, yeah, as you say, we're just going to stick to the takeaways because we can't actually staff up to that point with only this many people inside. Um, so anyway, big big detour from the tech stuff, but it's so important right now, you know, that we have to kind of make sure we get this right or otherwise we will be back here just talking about working from home for another six months uh, when... It all goes horribly, horribly wrong. That might be a record for our quickest detour. Uh, Tell me, because I've been trying to muddle this through. I thought I understood what was going on with Michaela, the influencer. I'm not sure I've understood the full story here. I know you've been reading into it. Talk to me about it. Yeah, so this is great. So for people who aren't au fait with the heady heights of influencer culture, um, Michaela is... Uh, one of she last year she was time, one of Times 25 most influential people on the internet. She has 2.2 million followers on Instagram, uh, 170,000 followers on YouTube, uh, over 500,000 on TikTok. Has done brand deals uh, and like brand partnerships with Prada and Calvin Klein and Samsung. Uh, you know they use phrases like you know Gen Z tastemaker, but She's not real. She's not human. She is a computer-generated character um, by a company called Brud uh, who created her in April 2016 and then two years later basically said, hi, um, yeah, here's what we're doing. Um, this yeah, glamorous model um, is actually a computer-generated model. And the big news sort of this week is that uh, she has been signed by... CAA, Creative Artists Agency, one of the biggest uh, talent agencies in the world uh, to represent her going forward, which is just, I think, it's just fascinating to see ourselves at this sort of a point. And of course, how casually it happens. We see it all in science fiction so much, these sorts of ideas of, you know, computer characters or sort of AIs and robots and all this sort of stuff and becoming normalized. And then when it actually does happen, it just very casually happens off on you know, off in this other sort of specific cultural niche. I mean, a perfect cultural niche for this sort of thing. The whole online influencer space, Instagram was where she was really sort of first born, um, where it is all about delivering the perfect image of yourself uh, and showing yourself doing amazing, glamorous things uh, that it has worked so, so well. And, yeah, I think just that idea of now an artist's agency Signing a virtual character is brilliant. And and to be really clear, like as far back as 2018, we were talking about Michaela, talking about the fact she was doing magazine photo shoots. I mean, this, this is a phenomenon that's been building up slowly. And it's really, if you think you're not understanding it, 
you're not alone. It's a really yeah. weird idea. And you mentioned science fiction. All I can think of is William Gibson's Idoru, where one of the characters is an artificial construct, Ray Toei. Yeah. And, I mean, it's just I love that the, the company behind it as well sort of, they use such cool kind of language to describe her with things like she's as real as Rihanna or that, you know, um, she is... Um, yeah, one of the other ones was because she's released a song and they've sort of said, well, you know, she uses, uh, you know, because again, they very much speak about her as sort of a, you know, a real person, um, that they talk about the idea that she, you know, what, uh, this quote, yeah, like many artists, she uses pitch, pitch correction tools and other software to make sure she's nailing her performance. You know, when that question of are there humans singing, for her behind the scenes, or is it a purely computer-generated singing voice? Um, that they, you know, they happily kind of keep those lines blurred to keep it as mysterious as possible. But again, there's so much production now, even in real artists, um, and in that same way that you know, Instagram, of course, you know, any serious influencer, you know, has how uses how many filters that they use to kind of perfect that image that. There's a lot to be said for that idea that they're like going, well, it's, you know, it's very, it's almost as real as any other person who uses all the filters and, you know, whether on their voice or on their face. It's really interesting because one of the creators, Trevor McFedries, um, who also is known as Young Skeeter, he's a DJ, he's a producer, he's a director, he's a manager, he's worked with Katy Perry, he's worked with Zalia Banks, he's worked with Chris Brown. It's like at some point he thought, well, why am I working with real people when I could have my own construct here? And, you know, then, of course, the real, the real cool part of the timeline definitely comes down the track when at some stage... It's like, well, so what is what does she get to do in her time off? It's like, well, she lives in the computer. Yeah, but but <sighs> can't we let her have an AI and and have a personality and and it's like, well, that's then that would be Microsoft Tay, and that's that's its own problem. So it's much better <laughs> to just have someone who looks lovely and sings songs exactly the way you want them to do it. Um, but. You know, I, it does add to that whole question, of course, of when the robots eventually kill us all because they'll be like, well, look, look what you did to this other constructed digital person. You ruin all our lives. <laughs> what I want to know is who gets who gets paid when Michaela gets paid? Because obviously they're doing deals. She's, you know, talking about doing, uh, I think, you know, two years ago she did an Instagram takeover for Prada. That would not come cheap. Who gets paid? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess Brud. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you pronounce it Brud. <laughs> Certainly, Michaela's a better name than Brud. That's yeah, for sure. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I guess, um, you know, the, I guess it just goes into corporate coffers. Yeah. <laughs> now, of course, if it was like that, remember that gorilla thing where it was like, who, who gets the copyright in the photo when the, uh, when the gorilla picked up <laughs> the, the camera to take the photo? Um, yeah, will we hit that point where if they give her a robotic body um, and she, like, walks around with oh a camera, does that count? Does that count? <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for all of this. Anyway, congratulations to Michaela yeah. and Brad and everyone else. Look, you mentioned robotic bodies. Let's talk about robots. Spot in Singapore. Have you seen any of the footage? I love it. I love this so much. I mean, Spot really is just the cutest version of all those 
speaking of robots that will kill us all one day, um, Spot is the cutest of those. Well, so this is Boston Dynamics, and we've seen this dog for years and years and years. You and I were writing about it when we were working together at CNET. It is undeniably a canine shape of some sort. Um, yep. I I honestly find it quite terrifying. Singapore have been using it to encourage healthy behaviour, social distancing. So Spot runs around parks and makes sure that people are behaving themselves in terms of the health distancing and everything else that we're supposed to be doing at the moment. I'm terrified by this, but when I look at, like, I know that I find the way this animal moves, this robot rather, to be a little uncanny valley. There's something just off about its movements. And yet when I do see the video of Spot running around Singaporean parks and asking people to stand a little further apart, it is adorable. And I don't know what's changed. I mean, I I guess the big part is that it's not using a cattle prod yet. (laughs) So you've watched that episode of Black Mirror Metalhead as well. That's that's right. But, I mean, it, look, I can't help but feel like it wouldn't take much to put some kind of a spike or a, or a prod and suddenly it's a, a vicious beast that's not so polite anymore when it's checking exactly how people are doing it. Um, but the cuteness of the, the form factor is definitely, I think, a, it's definitely a good thing because you, when you've seen those... Uh, there's like the robots that they've had that kind of look like almost like um, a cross between a Dalek and Robbie the robot from, you know, like Forbidden Planet or something like that. That they, they roll around American shopping malls and, yes. and are sort yes. of cops. I know the ones you mean. Yeah. And like they sort of have a menacing quality to them that leads to people like pushing them off bridges into ponds. <laughs> that are in the mall and things like that because everyone's just like going, no, no, no. I don't want a human-sized creepy robot rolling around telling me what to do. But a cute little yellow dog that is all kind of nice um, that gently nudges people for doing the, the wrong thing. Um, I, I haven't heard it. Is, it. is it saying things to people or is it just sort of... My understanding is yes, it will come over presence. and let you know. It'll have a little chat to you and say, yeah. please, 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 please stand further apart from each other. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, maybe that's, geez, the creep factor just keeps in. I'm like, this is how they get us comfortable with the idea, isn't it? And then they <laughs> add the cattle prod later. but Because you don't start with the prod. But by golly, you add the prod at some stage. It's going to have to add the prod at some stage. Look, I don't know. We've been waiting for these robots to get deployed this way. Atlas is their bipedal one. We've seen it do some absolutely terrifying things like backflips and jumping and running over terrain that I don't know if I could run over. There was that cheetah one that got clocked at being able to run at 60 kilometers per hour or something like this. Boston Dynamics has always felt like like it was about to do something really fundamentally dangerous, and I can't tell if that's a genuine concern or just the product of too much science fiction. I don't know anymore. But hey, God bless the Singaporean government for finding a way to get spot out on the streets. Yeah, and humans, stay vigilant. Stay <laughs> vigilant. 
both in social distancing and in not letting the robots take over. Yeah, please do that. Please do that. All right, from robots, let's talk about VR, because you and I have been having a bit of a muck around with some VR systems. We have. So HTC, um, you know, reached out and said, do you want to both have a bit of a a bit of fun times with um, a HTC Cosmos uh, setup? Uh, that's the Vive Cosmos. Um, the Vive brand sort of sits across almost all of the HTC VR headsets and stuff. But yeah, so it's been good. I've had a setup here at home for a long time. So for me, this is sort of an upgraded headset option, as well as for the first time trying out what's known as inside-out tracking. So that's where uh, instead of needing to use the, the lighthouses set up uh, in your house to kind of track the movement of the headset from the outside... This is about using the cameras to to just monitor the room and then assess how you're moving and track everything sort of out inside out. Um, so it's been, I guess, and you, Nick, how much kind of experience have you had with with VR in general before getting to play with this? Extraordinarily little, very very little. So uh, a mm-hmm. bunch of the PlayStation VR when that was being launched. And uh, way, way back in the early days of Oculus, um, when it was still just being shown off in booths, I had a bit of a go at it. And then one E3, I tried out every VR experience I could from HoloLens onwards, AR and VR. Um, But they're all, they're very tight setups. You're sitting down, it's set up. Please put on this headset, have a bit of fun. It's all very uh, clinical, but it's also meant to be as smooth as possible. It is a very different experience to get one of these at home open the box, and try and have to make it work. Yeah, and that is definitely, I think, you know, that is probably the biggest point of friction to this day and will remain so for quite a while to come, I think. Um, So, you know, let's start with you on that whole question of, you know, needing to make it work in the first place. I know sort of there's some questions around cables and stuff that, you know, we back from HTC that there's things that normally would be in the box when you receive one of these if you're sort of ordering one that weren't in the box for us which made it a little more difficult um, right out of the gate but you know with that sort of aside what was your experience like of trying to get up and running look it was not easy Uh, and cables aside cables are cables that's fine that was never a, a big issue there's no hand-holding. I think if you if you take an Xbox home or a PlayStation home and you plug it in, it walks you through what you need to do to set it up. There was very little of this for any of this experience, from when to put the headset on, how to pair the controllers, uh, how to adjust the headset focus um, so that you could see for specky blokes like me. There was very, very little of that any way through. And there were some frustrations. So while you could uh, go through a little setup for making sure the room understood where you were standing and what your floor height was at and all those sorts of things, it was actually getting myself set up to understand the interface of how to then go and find content was a massive stumbling block for me. Yeah, I mean, look, it it really does kind of keep coming back to that idea where... um, yeah, I bought so I bought my first HTC Vive while we were in Taiwan. For oh, I remember. I remember this. What what did you throw out of your bag so you could fit it in? <laughs> I I think I might have abandoned a pair of shoes in the name of making sure that I could get it into my luggage. I was amazed it fit um, at all, but 
<laughs> it was before it had come out in Australia, so I needed to, um, yeah, to make it fit in my bag. Otherwise, I would have been paying some exorbitant extra luggage fees. Um, but uh, look, I'll see if I can find that old photo actually, because I do have a photo of trying it. And if I find it, I'll I'll put it up on the uh, on the show notes. Um, but yeah, so you know, I've had it for a long time, and it definitely took me a while that first time around. And I think. This really does feel like the the biggest one. Well, I think maybe we'll kind of finish up with this question of like where where does it become usable for almost anybody? Mm. Because it's definitely that's a long way down the road. But um, you know, I've been through those sort of first all those kind of teething issues. You know, I've lived in a house that I own for well that a bank owns and I slowly pay off um for a good few years. So I like have been able to set up the lighthouses in my living room. It's all attached to the walls. So it's easy to sort of just jump in and have a turn. And in that sense I love it when I get the chance to show other people the experience because all I need to do is put a headset on their head and load up a you know, load something up and they can enjoy an experience. But I think you're right it that it feels like it would be really a huge kind of thing for the customer support around this if there was almost like white glove service, you know, an option to say, I will pay you this extra bit of money if someone comes and, and actually sets it up for me, you know. Um, but also that it is already sort of, a, you know, like I think the prices are under $1,000 for sort of these sorts of units now, but you also need a computer that can definitely handle running it. So there's a lot of those sorts of hoops to jump through to sort of get things started. Um, but I guess, you know, once you got it going, uh, how did you find using it? Well, I've got to say this. I was doing it in my little spare room, which is normally just where the cat goes to pee, but he's discovered he likes peeing somewhere else, so it's a spare room now. It's a long story. <laughs> um, I was quite blown away with the way the Cosmos does use those externally facing cameras to map your area. That was incredibly effective. And there's something a bit oddly chilling about sort of almost that grayscale seeing the room around you translated through the headset. It's like, is this a horror movie? This is wild. And that was <laughs> that was incredibly effective. And I actually really appreciated how easy that was. I still just found it really hard to say, well, here I am in this virtual world. I want to find a bit of content that I'm going to have fun with. And that was that was a very difficult thing to go through find the right areas, work out what I wanted to play, get it to download. I I found that I would have preferred to sit at the computer and go, okay, well, I'm going to download this game, fire it up, then put the headset on. Having to do it while in that virtual environment, I think added an extra layer that didn't need to be there. And I think that's what's really intriguing is I've often wanted to know when VR will be the interface for how we want to approach computing. And it's not to me at the moment. I wanted to do everything in a traditional interface and then use the VR for just the gaming or the experiential proportion of it. I didn't see how it could help me in that interface stage. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yep. And look, I, that's where I definitely find, because I do most of my VR stuff via Steam and that sort of, ver you know, that is essentially that version where you download things um, you know, into your local, you know, installations, and then you're just kind of choosing which game you're going to play um, once you're inside the VR. And so sort of that's definitely, you know, I think that's kind of that comfortable back and forth that, 
we found sort of works, you know, quite nicely on that sort of side of it. Um, I know, you know, HTC yeah, has launched its own library, and I do really like the idea of the subscription service because... Oh, yeah. It, and, you know, it feels like VR is in that place where, I mean, kind of like you're saying, that recommendations are much harder to come by right now because it is more like, you know, console gaming in the 90s or something, right, where, you know, there's not that many people you know who do it and there's not many outlets that cover it in any sort of meaningful way. You know, like there's some incredibly good coverage of VR. I'm not trying to put that down. But it's harder to sort of, you know, get bombarded with recommendations for VR in the way that any new console release, you know, you will very quickly see that swell of the zeitgeist around a particular game just pervading everything that's going on. Whereas, you know, Half-Life Alex, which just came out, um, you know, the most anticipated VR game probably in history, um, is, you know, still something that you really only sort of see talked about on the fringes of game culture at the moment because it's just not something that most people have access to experiencing, even within that sort of subset of people who love games. So that sort of side of it then means, I think a subscription is really great because at least it means you're not sort of going, I've got no idea what this is, but I still have to buy it Yeah. Um, before I get to experience it. And so I think out of the gate, you know, HTC throws in a month of free subscription. Um, I think they should, it should almost be like the Apple TV thing in a sense where, you know, they kind of went, we're not even sure how this is going to go yet. So here, everybody, have a year when you buy your new phone. It's like if you just plonked down a lot of money for your headset, they should totally be like going, here's six months or something like that. So you really get a chance to explore stuff before they're then sort of saying, all right, now you need to kind of pony up the credit card for, for more access. I want to step back from the games for a second and just talk about some of the experiences. Because the other thing that intrigued me was that in the sort of, I don't know, five years I've been playing around with VR for a little bit, experiences tend to be, here's an underwater world. Here's how you can spray paint in the midair and walk around and look at what you've created. That's all still there. I didn't feel like there'd been much of a of a transition in half a decade from here's what VR has to offer to what we're seeing now. And that really surprised me. Yeah. Uh, like, I totally agree. I think... I feel like people are still trying to work out what it's almost like it's not even a question of killer apps anymore. You know, like there are some great experiences available in VR if you have access to it and you can get in there and do it. Um, there's really sort of cool things you can do. Um, it's almost like we need to get to the point where the, like the, the weight and the, like, just how substantial the headsets are right now, right? Like, everything points towards the need for kind of shorter experiences. Mm -hmm. um, like, as I think the resolution of the screens have gotten better since, you know, my version, like the Cosmos is, um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, HD versus SD almost in terms of the quality. That means that screen door effect is a little less. But, I mean, it's never really been a major drama for us on my original Vive, but the... Yeah, you know, you can see that some of these qualitative things are getting better. Um, and it means, I think, as these things keep stepping forward, it feels like you feel more inclined to kind of stay inside VR a little longer because, you know, that sort of, that sense that you're in a thing, the more that is reduced, the more you just disappear into an experience. So 
it really feels like we need sort of, you know, the headsets to start weighing less. We need um, to sort of start sort of having, you know, that progression um, where you then just kind of can put it on very casually and not feel like you're getting hot and sweaty after 20 minutes and therefore it's time to stop. And I think, you know, the people are engineering experiences in that idea that a, you know, a 10 to 20 minute experience is probably more comfortable for VR right now than something that is more immersive and that doesn't have built-in stopping points along the way. I remember back in 2016, I think it was, when we were in Taiwan at um, Computex, there was a lot of work there on backpack VR experiences. So your whole computing experience was in a backpack. So the only cable just looped back behind your head. You had an incredible amount of freedom. And it also naturally limited how long you could play because you only had as long until the backpack battery lasted. It was usually just a kind of slightly converted laptop that had been shoved in there. They were some great experiences. In fact, 2016 at that Computex was still the best VR experience I've ever had. You were there with me. Birdly. Do you remember Birdly? Yes. Oh, that was so good. No way you can replicate that at home. It involved a a gimbaled lie-flat bed and a fan in front of you, but I have never felt like I was flying before the way I did with that. It was absolutely mind-blowing. And that was when I sort of wondered whether VR could ever be that home experience outside of specialised environments like that. I do think we have a long way to go with that. It was a little bit later that year I did my last ever E3 that I went to, and it was a lot of VR there as well. VR was huge that year, actually, at E3. And I remember, as you said, we've still got the weight there. We've still got the controllers. We've still got so many weird sticking points. You know, how do you handle movement in a game if you're not physically moving? Because that's when you start feeling queasy. None of that feels like it's been answered well in that time frame. Yeah. Yep. I think that's a great point. I know, look, I, um, I'll i just sort of throw it in at this point, but um, on Jetpacks are overrated this week, I had a conversation with Thomas Dexmeyer, who is the country manager for HTC Vive. Um, this isn't a sponsored thing or anything. It was just we had a catch-up kind of alongside having had the chance to play with the new hardware. So we had kind of quite a long chat about sort of where it's at, where it's going. Um, yeah, they know that sort of a lot of focus is around some of the more sort of industrial aspects of things and corporate aspects. They've actually just launched Vive Sync, which is actually a remote presence kind of meeting uh, thing within VR. Um, I know they've sent us some details, so we should totally try to do that before we send the headsets back. Mm. Um, is, you know, he said they've been kind of dog fooding that and multiple times a week having their own sort of meetings with the global team. Different people will get together. Um, you know, they're all obviously working from home at the moment, but he said it is kind of a whole different thing to to sit around a virtual table and have a meeting together um, instead of just the video conferencing stuff. And so, you know, it's like I'm sure that stuff is not, you know, a perfect magical solution to all our problems yet. But on the long term, I sort of really like that they're, you know, that they're playing with this a lot. But it does feel to me like maybe it's even more like the 80s with gaming, right? Like, because, I mean, everybody points to gaming as sort of that area where things do get driven by, you know, a lot of this stuff and the game experiences are where you kind of show off VR to somebody. But 
thinking back to the idea that you know in the eighties it was it was the arcade that was where you went to get a real gaming experience. Yes. And yes. like at home, you had your sort of you know your Atari and your basic Nintendo, but better experiences were at the arcade. And you know there are some places around you know like down in Melbourne, there's the big zero latency kind of setup. There's a few places in Sydney where you can go in almost like if you went wanted to go to a an escape room kind of experience, you could go for like an hour to go and do a shared VR experience with other people uh, as a group. But it feels like we probably do need that sort of that continued evolution of form factor of the hardware to keep getting better. And one thing that Thomas mentioned was, um, was they really see 5G actually playing a role in the future of, of a good experience for VR because, you know, they can then with the kind of with the low latency and the high mm. bandwidth of 5G, they can start to offload a lot of the processing and in that way that we talk about, you know, games are talking about doing streamed games where, you you know, the, the console isn't even installing the game. It's essentially just streaming the video of the game being played. And you're just really the controller is there to kind of send the, the inputs back and forth. He's saying that they really see a strong connection between 5G and VR in exactly that way. Then you can start to have much lighter and simpler headsets um, that are just about sending the signal back and forth and they don't need to be tethered to a high-powered computer. Everything becomes about sort of the network's connection to to the virtual reality experience. And suddenly it's like that then, then you start to almost head down that road where it's like, well, then maybe it is that VR is a thing in our pocket and it does eventually become that VR, AR crossover experience where it can either, you know, show you as part of the world a VR experience or it can just block out the world and show you a sort of a virtual reality. Um, but that's still really on a longer timeline, you know, that that it's almost like we're a long way from, you know, the Xbox One compared to the 80s arcade. Um, and so we just need to still go on that journey. And it doesn't mean either that there's not a room for a really enthusiastic, awesome bunch of, people who love this and keep using it, it's more like it's not about to explode in that mainstream way. It's definitely not. And we have been writing articles about it being on the cusp of exploding for years and yeah. years and years and years. I think my first one might have been back in the 90s. At some point, I'm going to have to admit, maybe it's not on the cusp of exploding. And, and I don't know what will push it over other than time. And just Quickly going back, a huge shout out to Zero Latency because if I hadn't played Birdly, it would have been my favourite VR experience ever <laughs> and it is still my favourite group VR experience. It is yeah. a wild ride. I still always love the story of one of our uh, colleagues uh, from Vertical Hold, great podcast, go check that out, Adam Turner. He talked about doing doing Zero Latency once where he tried to, he was kind of shooting down because it has verticality in it because yep. even, you know, you're in a warehouse but he's looking over a ledge and shooting down into this other area. And he said, I almost stacked it because I tried to lean on the railing. <laughs> <laughs> but he's like, testament to how immersive that stuff yeah. is. So, I mean, all I, I feel like the best recommendation is it's like, go, like, it's worth experiencing. I think oh. it is a beautiful thing. I still always love the fact that as a teenager, I got to go to the Powerhouse Museum and play Dactyl Nightmare <sighs> back in the early 90s. 
Um, but boy, was that a different beast to what we have now. We have amazing things. It really does have some incredible roles to play in all sorts of like, you know, like mental health, in, mm. in even just relaxation. Like there's all these things that this kind of immersive experience has so much to offer. Um, even I just saw, you know, the guys who make The Room, uh, it's like a puzzle game, I think. Or oh, I've played one, two, and three, and I love it. So there is now The Room for VR, oh. which is a, a pretty much like a perfect VR escape room, if you think of it that way, where you're trying to just solve all these puzzles in VR. Um, but so, like, the things kind of keep coming along. And look, Beat Saber is always worth saying out loud because it's now two years old. Um but it has an amazing community and it's well worth looking up videos because Beat Saber is this great game that ha- from day one, it supported the use of an external camera. So you could like film yourself playing the game because it's able to kind of pick up the VR environment and then sort of show you inside it. And it's essentially like the old Guitar Hero and all those games, except you're holding two lightsabers and you're like slicing blocks um, in time to music. And it looks amazing. There's been a massive modding community for it. It has probably been the closest thing to a, you know, a, a killer app when it comes to what has made a lot of people adopt and regularly use VR. It's definitely been a winner on that front. But um, you know, all this sort of stuff just so worth experiencing because it might be that any given person, I think, once they've had the experience, might decide it's worth going through the pain of getting this set up because they love it. Um, and it's worth working out, do you love it yet? Or are you going to happily wait, you know, another, maybe it is another, you know, it, it, probably in the 2030s, right? <laughs> it feels like it might be that far away. But I do like Thomas's sort of uh, comment that it might be that when 5G is genuinely embedded in that same way that we saw so many things, you know, um, like Spotify couldn't have existed until a good 3G network kind of emerged. Um in the same way that, you know, so many video services couldn't have come along without 4G. And it's like, it might be that this is the one of those things that suddenly becomes part of that sort of next generation phone experience because suddenly it is something that you can put on a pair of glasses because all the processing is being done on the network rather than in the headset. So, yeah, but yeah. This is not the year of VR. <laughs> it's not, unfortunately. But, gee, it's good to play with. It's incredible to play with. And I just want to make it absolutely clear that 90% of my sticking points with VR are implicit in the nature of virtual reality itself, not in the hardware that's available at the moment. Yeah. I think we're done. <laughs> just our hands off and... Uh... <laughs> We solved the world's uh, VR problems right there and then. I'll meet you in 2030 and we'll see how we went. <laughs> um, Byrne, look, yes, you can ask me a question first. Go on. Where, where can people find you if they've enjoyed this podcast and want to learn oh, more about I hope, you? I hope they have. <laughs> um, find me at, at Seamus on Twitter or you can hassle us via at Byteside also on Twitter, at the Byteside on Instagram and slash Byteside on Facebook, and as I mentioned before, we've got Thomas Dexmeyer on an episode of Jetpacks Are Overrated this week. 
Um, and yeah, if you want to hear more of that sort of thinking from the actual company who's trying to make this stuff um, become bigger and bigger in our lives. Nick, where can people find you? Track me down on Twitter. It is at Dr. Nick, that is D-R underscore N-I-C. After last week's hiatus where I just got a bit angry on Twitter, I'm back to normal programming now. I've had my five days off. Everything's fine. <laughs> got it out of my system. We're back to normal. And you can find me on Facebook as well. Uh, just have a little bit of a hunt for Nick Healy. Brilliant. And so, uh, listeners, of course, you can also email us, ask, ask, the word ask, not ask, um, ask at biteside.com. Hopefully we'll hear from you soon, but otherwise, we'll see you next week.